This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from the City University of New York. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Today, our guest is Michael Siciliano from Queen's University in Canada. Michael's an expert on YouTubers and other digital content creators. He is working on a book with Columbia University Press, Creative Control, Platforms, Labor Relations, and the Aesthetics of Precarious Work. We're talking YouTube, content creation, cultural production, and much more. You're not going to want to miss this. Welcome, uh, Michael. Oh, thanks for having me. So I caught uh, Michael's presentation last year at the ASAs. You were on the, the panel with Rachel Skeggs, right? I believe so. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It was a killer panel. Do you remember what section it was for or who, who organized it? That was the pop culture uh, meeting. So it's the sociology of culture, culture section. Uh, I believe uh, Omar Lozardo was in charge of... Nice. Well, he, he was the name associated with that and was the moderator for the session. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty good roster. It was, yeah, Rachel Skaggs and also uh, Bill Roy and uh, Ian oh, yeah. Peacock, who are from uh, UCLA. Mm-hmm. And then I forget, there was one other person whose name escapes me at the moment, um, who was doing some interesting stuff on, like, taste in pop music in Italy, I believe. Um, yeah, that was a real dynamic kind of interesting panel. It was terrific. So, well, first... Tell us about your project and the book that you're working on. You're setting YouTubers. So, so <laughs> t- tell us about like YouTubers. Like, who are they? What do they do? Like, well, you know, what what's it about? For sure. Um, so, you know, the project I've been working on for the last, I don't know, several years was originally my dissertation project and has kind of evolved into a sort of bigger, better version of that, which is this book project. Uh, it's a comparison of, of creative work in what I would call like a conventional kind of culture industry, pop music production, and platform-based uh, culture media industry, so YouTube production. Um, so I spent like about 10 months at like a recording studio in Los Angeles and about another 10 months doing field work in one of these media management companies that manages like thousands of YouTubers uh, in LA. And then also spent a number of months traveling around the U S interviewing YouTubers. Mm -hmm. YouTubers are real interesting. So like compared to say the other case, the music case where people have this um, there, I spent a lot of time interviewing like audio engineers. They have a similar kind of training. They have similar kinds of backgrounds. I mean, there's a, a, a degree of variation, but oftentimes they have some sort of apprenticeship that they went through or they went to uh, the Musicians Institute, some of the people in L.A., which is like a mm. sort of a for-profit kind of educational institution. And, you know, they have, they're kind of similar sorts of people, even though you have different, you know, they have similar training. It's, it looks a lot like other kinds of occupations you might find. And with YouTubers, they're actually quite diverse geographically but also in terms of like you know gender sexuality um ethnicity um age even you know i spoke to some people who are like uh, upwards of you know we tend to think i think of youtubers as like these young 15 to 30 year old or 15 to 20 year old even like you know people but you know i spoke with say like a father who's a stay-at-home dad who's in his 50s Mm-hmm. Um, who treats YouTube as a part-time job, um, and he quit his actual part-time job that he had to be a stay-at-home dad who makes videos with his kids, but makes the same amount of money that he made from the part-time job uh, that he mm-hmm. used to mm-hmm. have. And then his wife goes to work. And then, you know, I also met some people who are like, you know, college students who are paying their way through school, like in the Midwest. Um, and so they might live with their parents or their grandparents or something like that. And they, they, you know, save money that way, but then they also make money from YouTube content to help pay for other things like that. Um, and then you get people who are a little bit more professionally oriented, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, for example, something I found is that people in, say, Los Angeles or New York, as compared to people in, say, like the Midwest or the Southwest of the U.S., people in L.A. in these major sort of cities or media hubs will will think of the platform as kind of a way of of transitioning to television, to film, right? So they'll think of it much more as like one step in part of a broader strategy of creating a like creative career. Um, whereas mm-hmm, these other mm-hmm. people outside of those centers, they might like dream of that someday, but it usually has a more direct kind of uh, trying to earn a living kind of way. Like for example, another person in, in uh, the middle of the country uh, lost his job due to the uh, you know financial crisis in the 2008 right the, the Great Recession, mm-hmm. and he was really you know his story was like oh I was really 
just trying to find something I could do that would require very little, basically little investment uh, on his part. And he was like, well, I got a computer. I got like a webcam. YouTube just started to expand its monetization policy. This was right when they expanded the partnered program. We can talk more about what that is a little later. But basically right when you could really very easily monetize your content. And so he was like, okay, I'll see what becomes of that. And then by the time I met up with him, you know, he was earning all-encompassing. If you considered not just what he was getting from the platform, but what, what he got from all various side deals that you can make, you know, it was upwards of 50 or 60 grand a year. And by that time, he right. had also managed to find like a regular job on top of that. So all in total, he had like a, you know, a fairly good annual income, right? And so, I mean, so it's, it's yeah. quite, but for him, it was a very pragmatic, like he was never dreaming of being on television. So it varies. Anyway, so they're quite diverse. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of people. That, yeah. It, it, it's interesting. I'm finding like uh, we're doing a study on podcasters. And one thing that struck us is very few people are actually making money mm -hmm. on these media. And it's almost universally a side gig unless the person finds a way to become a content marketer for a company. Right. Right. That's true of basically all uh, cultural production, right? That yeah. when, it, whenever you have cultural production, especially if there's low barriers to entry, it's going to be the case that the vast majority of people are earning nothing. And yeah. uh, a few people are extremely successful. And like, you know, I have a whole lecture on this in my undergrad class where I show them the superstar distribution and uh, Michael's yeah. because he's seen <laughs> yeah. it, you know, where, um, you know, when I just show power law after power law after power law, where, you know, there's this huge number of losers, there's a tiny middle class, and then there's a vanishingly small super elite. Right. And I think, I mean, it's definitely the case with you. So I'm, I'm rattling off kind of like the, the fun examples where it's like, oh, someone is able to pay for their schooling or something like that by making, you know, tutorials on how to do cool things in Photoshop or something like that. Yeah. But for the most part, and I think this is shown in definitely one of the book chapters that I sent you, the distribution of views and the distribution of subscribers, uh, which I use as kind of a proxy for earnings because they're associated, is very much like a superstar distribution or a power law distribution. So there's a lot of people at zero or very close to zero. Um, there's a very small kind of middle range. And then you have very you know extreme successes where it's like they get you know, a billion views per video or something like that, which is very rare, but there are those, right? So yeah, YouTube is no different. Um, and I think um, to connect this a little bit more broadly to like platform-based kind of work in general, I mean, I think there, there's there's been, oh, I'm, the, the name is escaping me. I think it's Martin. Uh, yeah, Martin, uh, Kenny, and John Zeisman or Zisman, who I believe, uh, Kenny's definitely at UC Davis, but they had published a thing on... Um, called Sustainable Growth and Work in the Era of Cloud and Big Data mm -hmm. uh, a while back. And, you know, the finding was that if you look at not just YouTube, but things like Airbnb or Uber or whatever, they also have a similar kind of distribution in terms of earnings. So mm -hmm. in, in some ways, these platform-based things, or I think the, the idea you could take away from that or what that suggests is that, you know, some of these platform-based kind of forms of work, YouTube being one example of it, are kind of more similar to... Yeah work in media or creative industries. You know, what strikes me though, is like, even with my kids, they have a sense vaguely that it's a superstar model, but they don't realize the peakedness of the distribution. Like, and how, and at least in podcasts, I'm finding even very well-ranked podcasts are making very, very modest revenues. Like it's, it's stuff that you would assume would be famous and you would assume would be included among the superstars is in fact earning what like, you know, a typical working class job might might deliver. Is that is that something you're finding too? Or um, again, so like, I don't, you know, it's hard to get kind of earnings data from YouTube, because like YouTubers are told not to talk about how much they earn. Um, no, right. Really. <laughs> I, I mean, they, they will, and they do talk about it online. There's various like online forums in which people will discuss like how much they get paid and, and about how mm. much they earn, but it's part of the, um, the thing that you get when you sign up with YouTube or Google or whatever, that basically says like, you shouldn't discuss your CPM or your uh, cost per thousand, what you get paid per thousand views. Uh, with anyone, right? You're not really supposed to talk about it. And there's not really like mm -hmm. a way that they can really enforce that. And so they do discuss like how much they get paid on their own. And 
you know, people will, on their condition of being kind of anonymous, definitely discuss like how much they earn. But in a in what my my point being, it's very hard to get that like on mass, like for in the aggregate, mm-hmm. like from the platform. So I've used things like subscriber counts to kind of measure that because um, that you can get, you can kind of scrape that data pretty easily. Right. But yeah, just from interviewing people and sort of connecting like, well, so how many subscribers or how many views do they have? What do they say that they earn? Um, there are certain things where, yeah, they, you know, they have 200,000 subscribers. They get over a million views a month. You would expect them to be doing pretty well. They're pretty well known. They have fans, they yeah. have merchandise, they have the whole deal. And yeah, if you look at just what they get from the platform, it's not very much money. It would be like a very, fairly blue collar uh, or working class kind of income. But then from there, then they also have all these uh, kind of, you know, what people might call side hustles or other ways, other revenue streams that they develop, uh, some of which are off platform, some of which are on other platforms, which for me, the idiosyncrasies of YouTube or the sort of uncertainty introduced by YouTube, and we could talk about that more if you want to, um, is kind of compounded because it's like, okay, so you have money that you get from YouTube, which is under the control of Google. And the way that they monetize content kind of fluctuates kind of quickly uh, and without notice oftentimes. But if you're also, a, you have a side hustle where like maybe you talk about products that can be purchased on Amazon. And if people purchase those through mm-hmm. your YouTube page, you know, through links that you provide, maybe you get a percentage from Amazon, from the Amazon sale, which is something that people do. But when you do that, you're also subject to any changes that Amazon might introduce. So that kind of also is another source of maybe uncertainty or at least risk, right, that they have. And then if you add into that, well, I mean, this just kind of adds up, right? Like there's they're spreading their kind of sources of income across various platforms and various, you know, tactics that they engage in with to in- increase revenue. But um, but it also kind of compounds that certain uncertainty or the sort of, you know, riskiness of the, the career or the precariousness, if you prefer that term, you know, whatever they all kind of point to a similar kind of idea. Yeah. So I, I was, you kind of answered something I was uh, anticipating there, but like in various cultural industries, we see what would seem like the main gig is actually kind of a loss leader for other revenue streams mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. you know, so like um, Alan Kruger wrote a paper around 2004, then he had a few versions subsequently that he looked at um, concert revenue data and recorded music revenue data and he showed that you know pop musicians it used to be that you would break even on the tour in order to make a profit on the record and basically you know so like you'd hear like i'm going on tour to promote the record mm-hmm. now it's actually the opposite you release the record in order to promote the tour right and you know you break even on the uh recorded music and then you make a profit on the concert revenue so you know obviously among the kind of like yeah i don't think joe is selling a lot of socianic swag <laughs> but, uh, but like, you know, among the relatively successful that we might call like, you know, working YouTubers analogous mm-hmm. to working actors in Hollywood, do you have any even vague sense of how much of it is YouTube, the revenue is YouTube ad revenue versus Patreon versus con appearances versus swag? Yeah. Merch. Yeah. In terms of like breaking it down, like what, like if it's at fifty percent, sixty percent, that I, I don't feel comfortable making that kind sure. of like breakdown. But I would say just based on what people say that their annual earnings are versus what they say that their their ad revenue is per month or something like that, I would say mm-hmm. maybe it's like definitely less than half of their incomes for the people who are actually kind of doing it, so to speak. Mm-hmm is coming from like ad revenue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that implies that it affects it's kind of a freemium model, right? That uh, for the listeners, you know, there, there's probably a very large base of listener, or excuse me, viewers who just, you know, watch they and they either have YouTube red or they just watch the ads right. and the, the uh, producer gets some amount of uh, revenue from that. But then there's probably this small base of very dedicated fans who, you know, pay to see them at a convention or order swag or subscribe to their Patreon or something. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I think it definitely fits that in some ways. And it, but it also, it depends on, it depends on a little bit on like the genre that people are working in. So maybe like someone like a vlogger might lend themselves to that, but then other people who do like interview 
based uh, shows or people who do, for example, like I was uh, someone they met up with, like, I forget what part of the country that was in, but, you know, he does stuff where he interviews bands. Yeah. And uh, I don't think people are really going like stuff where it's very centered on the person's personality. I could see that 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 seems to be the case where it's definitely like what you're describing, uh, where there's these dedicated fans that will pay for merch with their face on it or even like, you know, PewDiePie, right? Definitely fits yeah. that model mm. right? very well. Uh, but for certain other kinds of content, maybe less so, right? Mm -hmm. So you could imagine it would vary. So I, what I kind of imagine is that, uh, first of all, the amount of revenues that come from ads is going to vary. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and not in the sense that the CPM would vary, although it probably does, but in the sense does. that, yeah. you know, your other, because I imagine YouTube has something similar to what they used to call the Nielsen curve, right? Which is that there's a higher CPM for the shows with the higher audiences. It's it's not just that you get more because it's a higher number, you a higher volume, but you also get a higher rate if you have higher ratings. And it's also dependent on what you get to remember, right? Things are very fine grained on the yeah. internet. And so it's also who your audience is like the demographics and things like yeah. that will affect i mean to a certain extent these that stuff is kind of black boxed yeah but you can you know people talk about it and you can kind of get a sense that like okay well this person earns more or claims to at least yeah. uh and their content is quite different they have and also like you know just from making some of my own content you can kind of see this you can see little i don't make i made like a total of a quarter or something like that over the course of a few years but you could see the actual fluctuation in rates change what did you spend it on <laughs> <laughs> no, i think you have to i think you have to get like at least like a hundred dollars before you get paid i see or that's how it was up until um up until i got demonetized a couple years ago uh-huh but that was i wasn't doing anything questionable it's just they they changed the um the rules yeah. around monetization a couple years sure. ago after the sort of apocalypse <laughs> stuff but yeah 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 so uh but the, the rest of my question is like so let's assume that you know maybe uh, among relatively top tier youtubers that you know they get something between i don't know 40 and 60 percent of their content from you know the ad cut but yeah you know that other 50 percent or so the details are going to vary, right? So for one YouTuber, mm -hmm. it might be that they sell CBD-infused elk meat. And for another <laughs> YouTuber, it might be that they have an Amazon affiliate, right? So an interview right. show, it might be the CBD-infused elk meat. And for uh, a product reviewer, it's almost certainly going to be Amazon affiliate links. Right. And, you know, for maybe something else, for maybe like a, uh, you know, like a Minecraft YouTuber who targets kids, it's going to be uh, you know, custom backpacks, and then right. uh, there could be other YouTubers where they have cam sessions, you know, right. and, but there's always going to be a side hustle, right? That, and it's just going to vary by genre. Right. Yeah, I, I would say that's definitely the case. Um, yeah. Everyone always has some sort of side gig, and it varies quite a bit. Um, but I think the one thing that is uniform is that there always is kind of a another thing on the side and the other thing that is fairly uniform is that it's usually dependent upon some other it's often not always but often dependent upon some other kind of platform based uh mm -hmm. revenue stream right mm -hmm. uh, except for the the cbd uh, infused elk meat uh or or yeah. more commonly like some sort of product deal that that you might get like i don't know say like people who do music stuff might get like free microphones or free mm -hmm. you know music recording stuff or whatever that they find appealing or product mm -hmm. reviewers will oftentimes get free stuff that they review as another not necessarily income but like perk or something like that yeah i've been watching some like travel uh youtube lately and i and i've noticed that a lot of them think the uh the, the tourism board of whatever country they're visiting, right, which to yeah, me right. implies that, that basically the trip was paid for. Right. And mm -hmm. so they don't right, have right. expenses and then they get to uh, yeah. just keep the revenue as pure profit. Yeah. So you'll get, you'll get things like that as well, but also that's like dependent upon, I mean, like that doesn't make any sense for someone who's doing like, you know, a sociology blog or vlog or something like that, or someone who's, well, I don't know. After that deal with Pearson comes through, you know, right? we, we, can, we, we can really move some intro textbooks. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like this, it's 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 dependent on, I think, those things. What you can do is kind of dependent on what kind of content you produce. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I was actually uniquely surprised in, uh, or surprised to find was just how dense the number 
like how embedded in platforms a lot of their work is. So, I mean, like one of the things I talk about in uh, one of the papers I have that I'm working on is just like what the sort of embeddedness of cultural production within a particular platform kind of does to cultural production or the kind of media that's being produced. Mm -hmm. But that's just focusing on like YouTube or a particular, but they're also like the work that they do is very much embedded in, so not just YouTube, but it's also embedded in Dropbox. It's also embedded in things like MailChimps or like, or like, you know, SurveyMonkey. And like, they also use, you know, various delivery services, or sometimes they'll use TaskRabbit to get people to help them to do things. I mean, you know, it's like a lot of the, the actual facilitation of the work is like stretched out across a variety yeah. of different kind of. There's a big ecosystem of, of service uh, providers. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah. Right. right. And, and, and you know, that's in some ways when you guys talk about like the merch deal and the comps and all that, you know, at first glance, it feels like it's totally a, something new, but in a way like, uh, you know, Hollywood celebrities, I'm sure always got paid to show up at, you know, conventions or got their own merch deals. And really what's happening is all this stuff is getting so cheap that somebody with a following of fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 can use the same monetization strategies that were once only available to like, you know, a really big star. But not not quite to the same extent, because the transaction costs you'll always have with you, right? So even with uh, platforms that digitize and automate things and, you know, automated ad auctions, so you don't need, you know, Don Draper sitting there making a pitch for it. Yeah. You know, it, it the, the transaction costs still exist and they still eat it. And also you also have the Nielsen curve and uh, there's something of a risk premium associated with advertising through automated things rather than, because like brands like to vet and, you know, brands would rather advertise on a sitcom where they can pre-screen the sitcom and make sure they basically approve of the message then mm. advertise and like you don't want to have uh, some flare up of saying you know Coca Cola why are you support paying for advertising on a YouTube channel where some guy goes to visit the suicide forest yeah right which is exactly what happened a few years ago yeah yeah right? exactly yeah and, and, and at the time I at the time I, I I joke that you know brands want to avoid you know contagion from other brands and this is why. Um, the suicide forest is disavowing its association with YouTube. <laughs> Wait, can you tell the story of the suicide forest for listeners who don't know it? It's a good story. Yeah, sure. Um, so as I recall, it was, was it Logan Paul? I think so. Right. Is that yeah. correct? Right. Was doing a video in which he went to a forest in, I believe Japan. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah yes. In which people often commit suicide and was kind of as that. Um, so Logan Paul is kind of like a prankster, kind of a broy, kind of like, yeah. Hitting the 18-year male demographic. A funny guy, so, kind of, but not yeah. my particular sense of humor. But, you know, he's very appealing and also known for, like, pushing kind of the limits of good taste. And so he was doing that in the context of this place where in which a lot of people, you know, have taken their lives. And, and yeah, there are advertisers. It might have been a Coca-Cola, but just a number of advertisers whose ads were shown against that content got very upset. And this wasn't just an isolated incident this was a number of instances in which like say other other ads were shown against like things that make logan paul seem relatively tame like white nationalist content and other things like yeah. that things that brands don't want to be associated with were being yeah. linked together through these automated like assignment of ads to to um content and that was oh was that like 2017 i believe something like that something it was yeah. a couple years ago and really, those instances, the suicide forest thing being one instance of it, soon after that, YouTube changed the way monetization worked. Mm -hmm. And so they made actually, they in, supposedly increased the number of people over like personally like vetting videos and actually like eyeballs on content as the way that they described it to kind of manage like what ads got paired with what, but also the return to an older model of monetization where you had to meet certain criteria before you could have access to ad revenue. So you kind of had to be vetted a little bit more, which is how things were up until like, oh, I want to say maybe 2010, up until basically there were a few years where they introduced the uh, partnered program wherein you could earn money from advertising on the platform. And then after a few years, um, there were certain benchmarks you had to meet initially. You had to have so many subscribers, you had to have so many videos, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then they relaxed that and basically just said, like, you can immediately start monetizing video uh, up until about 2017 or early 2018. Uh, and then basically they reverted to a slightly different version of what they initially started with. So now I think it's like you have to have uh, something like 10 or 12,000 subscribers or you have to have a certain amount of watch time. So people have to be actually like watching your stuff. Yeah. We, all, all of which is consistent with the idea that transaction costs are a problem. Right. You know, that if something is too small, like the promise of online, you know, that you got from like Chris Anderson's long tail is that no matter how minimal, it's still worth it because you can just aggregate. Yeah. And the problem with that uh, thesis is that Anderson totally forgot about transaction costs. And um, Anita Elbers' book, Blockbusters, is very good right. on this. And she points out that um, Hulu has way higher CPM than YouTube. Right. And it's because brands can kind of make uh, large buys with uh, media properties that they can kind of vet and choose to associate themselves with. Right. Um, and it's right. more prestigious. And it doesn't feel as bottom feeder as right. mm -hmm. advertising on YouTube does. Right, 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 right. Yeah, you could definitely see that. I mean, you, Hulu is like based on it's a little bit more like television in terms of the content as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean it is television, right? It's basically <laughs> the old <laughs> yeah. networks, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean. Hulu, which has ad, Netflix doesn't have ads, but those both like run off of basically the content that they produce. It's not user generated in the same way that right. YouTube is. And YouTube is kind of fairly unique in that way, uh, in that it actually, you know, people can earn money from user generated content. And that way it's quite a bit different than, say, being like an Instagram influencer or a celebrity on Twitter or Facebook, in which that's solely based off of any kind of side deals that you have right you're never earning strictly from the platform but also brings so, so in just to be clear so instagram instagram doesn't pay so if i post my fish lip selfies to instagram and <laughs> forty thousand people like them instagram doesn't send me a nickel but that gives me enough publicity that i can get a promotional deal with target and then target would pay me a nickel every time somebody sees one of my you know fish lip selfies where i'm saying i shopped at target and bought the lip gloss that's, I mean, based on like the, um, was it like Brooke Duffy's book, uh, not getting paid to do what you love. Uh, -huh. uh that's not specifically about in Instagrammers, but it is about like sure. influencers. Right. And, uh -huh. um, that's, that's how that more or less works. Although, I mean, something she finds in that book is that, and you probably can guess based on just being familiar with like, you know, how things operate in media industries. Like if, if you can find a way not to pay people for doing something for you. Yeah. you will right so oftentimes yeah like your hope is that you'll get paid by someone to promote something but oftentimes they try to maneuver around that in some yeah. some way you get exposure you get yeah you know or or i would imagine that a lot of people pay on the click-through or on the consummation of the purchase right, right. and so you know you really have to sell right to make money right, right, right. as opposed to this broad idea that i could just put like a gucci bag on my shoulder and then gucci drops me 50 grand you know though i was i read that book uh by aaron brooke yeah. duffy and one thing that struck me is how strongly she saw content creation as an economic enterprise mm -hmm. and I'm finding in, in my discussions that it, not everybody, in fact, the majority of people are not clearly doing this as part of a business plan. Was that your experience on YouTube? Like how many people are on YouTube as part of a sophisticated money-making enterprise that has a portfolio of products? And for those who aren't doing that, like what are they in this for? So for me, so I don't know if I can really speak to that. Um, what I can say is for me personally, like when I was doing my research a couple of years ago, uh, leading up to the, the book project, I was speaking primarily like solely to people who this was a business venture for them. Right. So mm -hmm. um, I was do I had been doing field work uh, with a, a multi-channel network, which is like a sort of not quite a talent management company and not quite like a video distribution company, but it's almost like if you can imagine some sort of, they're on their kind of way out as a business model or they've evolved into slightly different things at this point in time. But at the time they were kind of like halfway between what might look like a music or film distributor and what might look kind of like a talent management company, if that makes sense. And um, so they're kind of into promotion, but they're also trying to pitch the people they represent to work with other companies. Um, mm -hmm. And so the people that I spoke to were people who were primarily, who were managed 
by that company. So they were already okay. kind of pretty serious, even if they were like not making any money or didn't have much of a following uh, follower. But like these are people who are upwards of 10,000 subscribers um, who are doing, you know, 10 to 100,000 or 10 to maybe 20,000 on the bottom end and then like upwards of mm -hmm. a, a millions of views per month on the higher end. Um, so they were all pretty serious mm -hmm. and some were more calculating and strategic than others. Right. But they were all, mm -hmm. my sense was that their, their aim was all very much like, this is my little business that I'm running and I'm going to try to mm -hmm. make a go of it. Mm -hmm. What that meant. And, you know, like anyone who is trying to manage strategically manage your career in some way, uh, some people are better at it than others. And some people are better mm -hmm. equipped to do that than others you know maybe they have a background in you know business management or they took some entrepreneurship classes in college or something like that or maybe right. they like went to college period versus someone who you know didn't and just fooled around with a video camera in high school and says like okay i got a laptop and a video camera i'm gonna do this and they're you know lo and behold they're pretty good at it but but some people are my point being is it's like there's an uneven distribution of of practices but people do kind of think about it very strategically as best as they can is my sense i remember uh, earlier this year i interviewed i was trying to think of how to it was the equivalent of a, a couple accountants who uh, I'm, I'm like slightly changing things but it was like the equivalent of like a couple accountants who were basically like professors of japanese manga okay and like the entire podcast was oriented towards developing like the canon of manga criticism and taking on people with different views and i was like wow it's interesting like some of these cultural producers are not really business enterprises they're kind of like scholars in a way just on esoteric subjects that aren't recognized as disciplines like they just care about a cause and they're motivated by that and it's not really an economic thing and then that got me thinking about aaron duffy's book and are thinking about social media yeah. in general like are we over economizing you know, what, what this phenomenon is about? Like, is it, you know, are people thinking too much about the business side of it? Uh, is, you know, what do you think? I guess that's not even a question. That's just a jumble. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, sure. Like some people, I mean, sure. Some people do it because they enjoy it. Right. And I think, yeah. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, right. This is something we've always had, like, a, like with, you know, um, whether it's like people pursuing their dreams of being in film or their dreams of being in music or whatever, or comedy, right. Or something. I mean, like there is a certain level of enjoyment and, and, and pleasure. And I, I think that's something that I actually, and some of the things I've written about try to get at, right. Like we can kind of like economize it. And I do, and I definitely do think of these people as kind of like being strategic, trying to get ahead, trying to sort of manage their resources in a way that makes sense. But oftentimes I heard that described as something that they don't really, to varying degrees, that they don't don't enjoy that much, right? It's like something I have to do. I wish I didn't have to do that. Mm. And so, you know, the way that the book I'm working on, at least now the way it's organized is like, that's kind of like the, the negative side of things for them. It's oftentimes associated with like the uncertainty mm. of their job and things that they'd rather not do, right? Like, especially, you know, people who are into doing YouTube content because they want to be actors or they want to be comedians or something like that. Like they don't want to like manage their, do the accounting stuff, right? Like right. that's not exciting to them. That's not why they got into this, but they see it as like kind of a necessary thing that they do, or they don't want to figure out how to buy a better microphone or something like that, uh, or at least initially aren't interested in like, you know, the mechanics of the technology that enables them to do stuff. And yet some people are, but the other half of the chapters are like, what is enjoyable about this, right? Like, and, and really trying to highlight like that, yeah, we can economize things in a certain way, but, but there's also a certain pleasure in kind of making stuff, right? Yeah. Like it, it, it's a way to have some sort of, you know, it's pleasurable to like sit in front of a screen and like there's your face and you're moving and you're talking and you're creating sound that someone else is there they're gonna enjoy or you're creating images that people will enjoy or you're sharing information that you care about and there's a certain pleasure in the kind of doing 
of I think creative work or cultural production that I think actually yeah I mean I think you're right to say that that often gets left out I think of a lot of um, stuff that's written by more kind of like either labor focused sociologists or economic sociologists I mean even and it's not just Brooke Duffy but also like something like I don't know the pricing beauty or something like that like Ashley Mears's book which is a great book I like that book a whole lot but there's definitely an emphasis on these sort of transactions. How is it that you make certain investments to increase your return of your investment of your, you know, physicality or, or your, you know, sort of cultural capital or whatever it is that you're presenting online. And I think that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but that does leave out this sort of, forgive me if I'm being too esoteric, but this sort of sensual or kind of like uh, embodied experience of kind of actually doing the job. And that's something I actually found Equally across, to go back to the sort of comparative book project, like people working in pop music, but also people working in YouTube, they'll talk about this sort of like getting caught up in, I think what a term that like business or psychology, psychological scholars are familiar with is like flow, right? There's, they'll essentially describe these flow moments. Um, and that's something I've taken to calling aesthetic experiences because it's usually in relation to some sort of technology or some sort of object, right? So like YouTubers are like, they're not just like in their mind. They're like, they describe being like in the screen when they're editing or like some guy had this really crazy way of describing it or just wild way of describing it. Where he's like, I feel like I'm a vessel through which God is acting when he's cutting his videos together. (laughs) And like, I mean, they're, you know, they're smart and they're expressive people. So they're very, they use very colorful language, but I, I don't think, I don't think that's really captured when you just say like, okay, these are people pursuing symbolic capital or, or cultural capital or whatever, or capital capital, right? Like, like if you just, describe it in those terms um you lose out because like what is that that's not really pursuing some sort of status thing but that is kind of a to bring this back to more of a kind of labor process labor scholar description that is a game that people play to try to obtain that moment of immersion and and it's not just Mm -hmm. you know youtubers that i talk to like there's a number of kind of technologically dense jobs in which people describe this. So like stockbrokers, they find this like, um, I'm thinking of like care. You're talking about flow state. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. People find this in a lot of different places, but oftentimes it's, it's try. I mean, something I've been trying to push is like, think through like, how is there a material dimension to that experience? And if it's, there's a material Mm -hmm. dimension, that means there's a social dimension. It's not just like psychology, but it's sociological or a sociological and kind of like a, like, let's think about like material culture and materiality kind of way. So that's something I'm, I'm, Definitely, I would agree with you on, and that is something we tend to leave out. But uh, but I'm also kind of, I also just came from lecturing on a class about work and labor and like labor control and stuff like that. So like sure. I'm firmly in this mind of this like, huh. mid 20th century Harry Braverman mindset right now, because I just walked out of that. Uh, not, yeah. <laughs> not saying that might shade my description. I'm just, yeah. That's a great <laughs> state of mind to be in. Can I just parachute two yeah. things in here? Uh, one, I just want to do an internal promo for a past episode on flow state our christmas 2018 episode there's a a a bit with me and clayton childress i actually went to a sports psychologist to try to uh finish my book and he assigned that book by uh, mahali chicks and mahali (laughs) it's it's a a very cool book i enjoyed it so uh, check that out i'll put that on the back catalog once I'm able to repost that stuff. And the second point I forgot. So forget about it. Let's just move, move on. Gabe, do you want to? I, I just want to know what kind of videos was the voice of God speaking through? I mean, were these like <laughs> gamer mouse product reviews or something? No. <laughs> a, a um, real play of Counter-Strike, you know? <laughs> no. Thou shalt I, advise the James I Charles wish It palette. was someone, no, it was someone that um, was kind of an oddball, but basically made these kind of like strange, um, like experimental kind of videos, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like assembling pre-existing footage in like unique and novel kind of ways. For I don't want to yeah. get too any more specific than that. And I kind of like. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Sure. I get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> On a smaller level. Mm-hmm. You know, though, also, uh, a lot of producers are sort of like they're trying to serve a function in a small community, too. Like they envision themselves as like the voice of a community or Some do, yeah. uh, the journalistic arm of a micro community. And sometimes I, f- I feel like that or my sense is, is that that social role to the group that they're committed to, it overrides the commercial uh, sort of motivations. 
So that's just another sort of motivator besides the personal flow state. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, yeah. And I think, and I think that definitely changes over time. So, you know, it's, uh, something I did come across is a number of, you know, uh, online content is quite diverse and mm -hmm. both in terms of like the actual, like what the content is, but also who the people are that make these things. And so like mm -hmm. one thing I came across is a number of people who like, you know, started vlogging or started doing a lifestyle kind of content, right? It's about their life or whatever, as a way of kind of documenting their experience of going through either like transitioning uh, in terms of like they're like transgender or are grappling with sexuality in some way or another, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something that was like very, very important to them. And also um, at least initially in the way that they describe their sort of trajectory through making content, very important to a particular community or particular Mm. Uh, people that viewed them and identified with their experience or found some sort of um, common experience in what what they were going through and what they were documenting mm. online. But an interesting thing that, at least among that subset of the people I spoke with, was that as they got more popular, their community of fans expanded and also their relationship to that community kind of changed. Mm. Uh, so rather, they would say things like, as it was explained to me, early on those early on kind of relationships would be very much one of like those are my friends and we don't live in the same city but we talk as if we are friends right and then mm. as time progresses it becomes much more of a like a, a fan star relationship uh, which is much more different or distanced rather and a little bit like less community like mm. because then it becomes an issue of no longer like oh yeah those are my friends i'm happy to hang out and talk with them or send emails with them or you know share my life with them and becomes more of like those are fans and i need to have a separate kind of me space that's separate from my fan community um mm. and at least or at least that's my my sense of of things so there, there's a certain there's like a trajectory to that um it seems right Interesting. I, I remember this year at ASA, you know, Joe and I finally managed to escape into, you know, a bathroom at one point, and I and I told him we got to get security next year because <laughs> you know the, the Oceanics fans are just like, uh, 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 uh. yeah, right. Yeah, you, let's talk about YouTube for a second. Okay. Uh, you talk about YouTube; it's it's uh, at its power in the video streaming yeah. space, right? It's it's very powerful, but it also sort of plays a role of leadership among the sort of web 2.0 video production crowd right like the like it creates a community that does make a certain type of video production viable right like it helps people monetize who might not otherwise be monetized themselves on the other hand they also control streamers and probably co-opt uh, a lot of their money like can you sort of describe to us like youtube's role and like the sort of the complicated nature of it the double-edged sword sort of that it is in so far as producers are concerned. Right. So, I mean, like you said, like, I mean, YouTube is really, and this goes for a lot of social media platforms, but YouTube in particular, it's very unique in that it enables a lot of people who might not otherwise, and Gabriel already mentioned this, right? And, and we talked about this a little earlier when we mentioned like reducing barriers to, to entry for, you know, cultural production. Uh, in some ways, like YouTube started off and continues to be kind of a dream or quite a boon for people who wanted to express themselves online, right? Certainly like 20 years ago when people were talking about, I don't know, years ago, I used to help run or be affiliated, loosely affiliated with like things like indie media centers, which were these kind of like left wing kind of everyone should be citizen journalists kind of places. And mm. Things like YouTube seem to be quite a boon for that kind of DIY kind of activist cultural production. And it still is. It very much is across the board, mm -hmm. across the political spectrum. And beyond just the politics of it, just like anyone who ever wanted to produce something and upload it can and uh, and share it can do so. And that's, that's kind of awesome and kind of amazing compared to like the late 90s or, you know, 20 years ago or... Even, you know, 15 years ago, 2005, right, which is right around when YouTube came out, there really wasn't anything like it and continues to not really be anything quite like it. And then on top of that, it enables people to kind of monetize their content. And you can, you know, maybe it's not that great, but you can earn some money off of it. And that is also quite fascinating and quite 
you know, if I was like a certain kind of media scholar, I might say like liberatory in some ways. And, and I think it is, right? It certainly like enables more people than ever to kind of express themselves in a very public way. On the, on the flip side of that, I think there's a tendency to kind of portray social media and YouTube in particular, but just, you know, as this free space where anyone can do anything they want and there's, it's just wide open and everything is this like bottom up kind of culture that's being produced by just this is the natural stuff that would emerge if you just gave everyone a webcam or a cell phone camera. And I'm not saying that either of you, I mean, think this way or even that most like sociologists might think this way, but but I think that is a popular narrative. And actually, there's a lot of things that are very obviously shaped by how the platform monetizes things, like what it rewards and more importantly, like what the platform and various other kind of like intermediary organizations tell people they ought to do in order to increase their view counts and thus increase their earnings. Um, so you could see this like pretty clearly like when I was doing field work. When I started out, most YouTube videos mm -hmm. were three to five minutes in length because the platform said most clips should ideally between, be between three to five minutes in length. Now, if you look at YouTube, most videos are between 10 and 15 minutes or upwards of that. There was a very clear change in a lot of the um, these sort of like training materials that get circulated both by the platform and by these intermediary companies yeah. like MCNs and, and MPNs. And there are, there's a variety of acronym kind of organizations that come and go. But the point is that there are these other sort of organizations and the platform itself that kind of say like you might want to have a certain length of video. And we've actually you can actually see that happening. They'll also, you know, make suggestions about what should, how the video should be structured, how people should address the camera, um, what kind of framing should be used. And part of this, you could read mm. this on one hand as just like that's educating people about media production. Mm. People need to learn the rules about what should and shouldn't be done. It's a bit like going to film school or something like that. Yeah. And that is one way of reading that. But the other, another way you can read it is that this is a kind of like, Okay, you have this raw commodity that kind of exists that's ex being exchanged, but it needs to be mm. in order or you have this raw material rather that people are producing content. And it's kind of, you know, sometimes it's kind of lumpy. Sometimes it doesn't look right. Sometimes it doesn't work right for the marketplace. And so we need something that's a little bit more coherent or a little bit more stable or looks mm -hmm. a little bit more like television. I think this speaks to Gabriel's earlier comment of like what some of the problems are or some of the, um, what he called transaction costs yeah. um, are. And so like in a way to kind of shore up that gap between what is kind of a saleable version of content or content that might be desirable for advertisers, there are all these sort of guidebooks or suggestions that are made by the platform. So, I mean, I would say that that's one way mm -hmm. in which I don't know if I would say it's, it's quite like control in like a sort of dark and uh, menacing way, but it is certainly a way in which um, YouTube has attempted to kind of discipline creators, like in the way that you could think about like, you know, a hundred years ago, people would show up for work or 150 years ago, people would show up for work like whenever they wanted, or they'd like decide to clock out. Like once they made enough money <laughs> for the day, you know, they hit their, their, their enough money, like from a piece rate or something like that. Like they hit enough yeah. money that they, they earn enough for their, what they needed for the week. They're like ready to go home yeah. or like, they just didn't know to pay attention to a clock or something like that. And like, right. Or they show up drunk or anyway. I have a theory that a lot of people showed up to work drunk uh, in the past. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean but any of them, I, again, I'm teaching like a sociology of working labor class, so these things are like in the forefront <laughs> of my mind. But like, <laughs> that's not too dissimilar from like telling people like, oh, you know what? You need to have like everything needs to be clear and visible on your screen. Everything needs to be mm -hmm. in focus. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying that those are bad things, but those are things that people have been instructed to do. And so you get right. content nowadays. I think that looks much more professional, mm -hmm. uh, both in the sense that people know how microphones work and have learned how to use sure. cameras better and stuff like that. But the framing is very much like television. But does the, does the imparting of these technical guidelines, do you think that they ultimately help the YouTube community as a community compete for attention against other streaming video platforms like does it help in the war against hulu does it help in the war against cable tv or do you feel like it's somewhat arbitrary or uh stymies creativity or i mean i think it's probably definitely helpful for the platform 
in terms of individual content creators, I don't know. Who knows if people would have thought to yeah. even compete with television? You know, maybe they would have been like, I'm just yeah. making my own stuff online. It has nothing to do with TV. It's its own thing. And mm -hmm. instead, I think because of the competition over advertising dollars, right, there's like a real push to compete with TV on the part of the platform. Um, and I think that kind of ripples down through the user base. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, who's to say that's like an alternative history that we don't live in so i don't i don't really know you know but it's not it's not that much like tv because tv is mostly medium shots as a dialogue whereas youtube is mostly a close-up of a single speaker in an in a uh, prolonged shot right there's much less editing and, and part of that is that it's cheaper to produce right it's very cheap to just set up a camera on your desk sit in front of the desk and talk yeah or capture your screen Whereas it requires editors and cameramen and stuff like that. Like if you think of your classic uh, four camera sitcom, you know, it takes four cameramen and two actors and a uh, editor to make a four camera sitcom. Right. So that's way more people than just to have one person sitting at the desk. They, so I, I had a, another thought, though, okay. which is we we're talking about uh, the kind of performativity of the platform and how the platform shapes the content producers. Right. And, you know, you're making a point that a lot of this is basically benign. Yep. And it's basically just socialization for professionalism. But I think we can find a more uh, extreme and more clearly uh, malevolent example, which is Facebook's ratings that drove the pivot to video. Mm -hmm. Where, I mean, you're the specialist, so hopefully you'll remember this better than my hazy memory of it. But my understanding is that for a prolonged period, Facebook was giving people wildly inflated ratings of uh, how many people watch videos. And this... And it was an attempt to drive hosting away from like YouTube with a link on Facebook to being natively hosted on Facebook. And uh, you saw huge changes in uh, media production at one step of professionalism above the kind of people we're mostly talking about. Hmm. So not necessarily like you are kind of a semi-pro YouTuber, but more like you're a content production house like The Onion or Funny or Die or something like that. Right. That there was a pivot to video driven by the Facebook metrics, right. and then it turned right. out it was all bullshit, right. and all those people got laid off. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, that has uh, has actually, like, the way that... So, I mean, so, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're trying to get at is that, like, these changes and people reacting primarily to, like, metrics that are, that are essentially black boxed, right? In the sense that they... You don't know how they're calculated. They could be totally made up and require a fair amount of, like, trust and numbers, yeah, uh, really can have uh, kind of devastating effects because people orient to them. They create new kind of businesses built on in reaction to those numbers. And in, in, in the Facebook case, there was also anticipation that Facebook would start running ads on video and that you would be able to monetize video on Facebook at some point, which mm -hmm. I don't think you can do to this day. Uh, or you can't, it doesn't operate in the same way. Like basically they were thinking that Facebook would become like YouTube in terms of video monetization, mm -hmm. or at least that was a discussion circulating at the time that that was going on. And so, yeah, I think you had this, that, that is really kind of a problem actually. And so like there's the, that sort of rippling effect through other areas. I mean, you have that to a certain extent, this is something I wrote. There's a very brief, there's a sociology blog called um, uh, new criticals that asked me to write a little something for them a, a year or two ago and for exposure for, ex <laughs> for exposure yeah yeah definitely well i'm caught up in, yeah, in, yeah. in in this as well and um as are you yeah. you too but uh you know something that people would complain about to me this is more anchored in in some of the research i've done right is like they would format their video to meet the guidelines given to them by the platform so a certain length, um, there are certain ways in which if you tagged a video in one way, it would get kind of upranked in the algorithm. If you tagged it, if you overstuff the tag box, it might get downgraded. That was a thing that was people were told for a while. And these change all the time, like, and there'll be updates quite frequently, right? And so there would be certain things that would change like that, like, oh, uh, well, no, now the algorithm privileges longer videos or shorter videos or ones that are better lit or ones that have a certain aspect ratio. Or now we're all about vertical video. Whereas before, if you made a vertical video, it would, no one wanted to run an advertisement on that, but because of Instagram, now people are cool with that or whatever. 
and all of these different changes. And they would say like, basically I have all these videos that are formatted. I don't know if they would use that word, but I would use that word basically formatted for a prior iteration of the platform. And now all of those videos are kind of worthless. And that's a problem, right? Because essentially it's like, as if like, it's an equivalent, you know, I, I used to be kind of a musician of sorts. So I, I tend to, and I also do research on music. So I tend to think in musical examples, even if I talk about digital media, but it'd be like if people told you CDs were selling this week and you made all your music to fit on a CD. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, you know what? We're back to cassettes. Well, or well, with a CD, you, anything that you can put on CD, you can also put on cassette. But a more clear example would be: let's say that ASR experimented with publishing research notes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you started writing uh, a bunch of ten-page articles, and then a new editorial team came in, and ASR said, "No, we're going to go back to only publishing twenty-five, thirty-page articles. Right. We're not going to publish research right. notes anymore." And you had two research notes that you were halfway yeah. through writing. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's another good example. So it's it, it's basically, you know, if it's not. Like they're saying, and and they're, and in these cases, both of these cases, I think, right? No one's saying anything about the content per se, right? Like it's about the formal aspects of the content, right? It's not like it really wasn't up until the sort of adpocalypse thing, which is the uh, sort of what we were talking about, like the Logan Paul suicide force is kind of related to that. Uh, it wasn't really until that or the wa- rise of all the publicity, negative publicity around the rise of like white nationalist stuff on YouTube that they really started caring about content. So like when I was doing field work like four year, three or four years ago, most of the conversation, if they actually talked about what content was, was about copyright policing, basically making sure people weren't ripping off content, like, you know, using songs in their videos that were copyrighted or just like you know taking television shows and putting them up online or and there's a whole series of things that i could talk about with that but but really the the sort of like oh is this you know racist material is this fake news or or whatever uh, there really wasn't a topic of discussion and so like when i went to like vidcon which is like a video con like a conference for this sort of stuff like industry conference slash like fan convention it's like a little bit of both in 2015 no one was really talking about that it was all about this stuff like how long should be th- things be um how should i structure the video to to make it more likely to be watched um, how can you ensure that you get eyeballs on the screen and all of this sort of stuff and then when i went back in 2018 it was much more concerned with like is what you're doing legal? <laughs> like, is what you're um, in terms of like false advertising? That was a bigger discussion because that had mm. also come out. And also, like, what do we do about these more kind of like bad citizens? You could say on there. So the, that really, like, to go back to the, this issue, right? Like, changes uh, in what the platform kind of privileges do have this effect on either making like prior work that people have done less likely to be um, to come up in a search and thus less likely to be viewed and thus less likely to earn either money from advertising revenue or from these sort of side deal kind of things. Because if you're not popular, then no one's going to want to pay you to do anything. And then it also has this effect on these sort of downstream organizations that build their business off of the platform. So whether it's uh, what Gabe was talking about with like the Onion or these other companies that had hired people specifically to make Facebook content, the same thing I think holds true for, you know, uh, companies that build their business off of YouTube or other kinds of platforms. There's another, this is slightly different, but there's another um, like article um, that I published a couple of years ago in research in the sociology of work called control from on high. And it's more about Google analytics and their, the way that they calculate views. And it's about this digital uh, publishing company. It's like a blog network where I had done some research and they had the case where like there would be changes in how analytics calculated how many views they had. And they're in the business of selling advertising space on like dozens and dozens of blogs. And that really had some seemingly devastating effects on their day-to-day business because essentially it was as if their inventory of views was permanently in flux and if like what you're selling is incalculable then that makes it really hard to sell that right like if i can't say like oh here's an estimate of what our views are and here's how many views you actually had because the way that the system calculates things is unclear or fluctuates and changes 
that's a real problem Mm -hmm. and like that you know and that might just be like an isolated case in which that happened but i think that one case kind of highlights the uncertainty that those those sorts of systems introduce when you embed like an organization within them or you embed work within them and and how much i think power the owners of those particular kinds of infrastructures those kind of platforms really hold it's not just the owners, right? Because a few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, copyright as yeah. having been the original concern behind YouTube when it first launched. Right. And, you know, that will be the concern again if uh, Josh Hawley ever drops the nuclear option on the internet and repeals 230. Right. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Michael Siciliano from Queen's University in Canada. His forthcoming book with Columbia University Press, Creative Control, Platforms, Labor Relations, and the Aesthetic of Precarious Work. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno, music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.